Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and we've got the whole Community Broadband Network's crew in the Zoom lab to do this. I was going to say in the studio, but we're not, and we're not even in the same state, uh, but we are all in the same Zoom room, and we got a lot of enthusiasm to think about what we said last year was going to happen and how that's going. Um, I'm going to introduce everyone. I'll start with Rye, Rye Marcatilio McCracken, the longest name. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Chris. I appreciate it. It's good to be here with all of you. Um, I'd like to just get ahead of it this morning and uh, apologize for any low energy I might have. I don't know what kind of sociopath schedules a podcast recording the first thing on a Friday morning before Christmas break, but uh, so if it seems like I'm just you're working next week, I don't know what you're talking about. I, this is I started vacation last night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one that should be complaining. <laughs> and as for what kind of sociopath, I, I get that question a lot. Um, we also got Sean Gonsalves. Welcome. Glad to be in the CBN Zoom Zoom room. The Mazda room. Uh, we got Emma Gautier. Welcome. Thank you. Um, it's Gautier, but. Oh, <laughs> Gautier. <laughs> You know, at some point I'll remember that. I, I mispronounced Ernie Staten's name, the guy from uh, Fairlawn, uh, the director of public service or, or the public. He's a director of infrastructure is how I think of him. I forget what his actual title is. I've only mispronounced it every time I've talked to him. Oh, um, it's not Staten? No, it is not. It is not. He's not from the the island of uh, Borough of New York. Uh, we also got Deanne Cuellar, who's taking a drink of blood orange soda right now. Yes, because I, too, am low energy this morning and also on emma's name how can you forget how to say her name it's also like the same name as a band with one of the most famous breakup songs on the planet never heard of them <laughs> nope. Oh my goodness. nope that's You're impossible it's impossible that you haven't heard that song <laughs> i'm a sociopath <laughs> we got christine parker who might not be able to say anything because she's laughing too hard at me uh good morning yes i am also part of the low energy crew this morning hey i'm i get up out of bed i'm excited to tackle the day um uh we're gonna go over some of the predictions we made a year ago for how this year was gonna go think uh, review some things that were going on uh the most important one though the one that's been burning a hole in my head is rye did you make it into the office more than 10 times this year oh good question i think it was close i think it was probably close (laughs) Uh, more importantly, perhaps, uh, we hit more than 500 community broadband bits podcasts. That was awesome of the numbered episodes. Uh, we did, um, we did four freaking tribal broadband boot camps. <laughs> I remember a year ago thinking about whether or not that could be done and how challenging it would be. And absent coronavirus with Omicron, uh, which I got during the time we were supposed to have the first boot camp in January, we probably would have hit the fifth one um, or for the year. Uh, that one will be in January in Gila River. Uh, so that uh, was a remarkable year. Um and uh yeah i mean we're a bit smaller than we were at the beginning of the year we've slimmed down a little bit we've lost two great fellows that were with us last year uh but we have some great core staff here and it's gonna be an exciting year let's just uh let's go around a little bit and everyone could just say like before we get into the actual predictions which we'll get into um uh what's like one reflection that you have on on the year and uh let me i'm just judging by your facial reactions who wants to go first i'm seeing christine is ready to go first it was not in fact but i will (laughs) we made a dashboard we made a couple dashboards and it (laughs) became a big deal (laughs) really great dashboards that's right i had a dream of dashboards and i feel like y'all really knocked it out of the park so that's wonderful the acp dashboard.com is everything that I hoped it would be. And it's I think it's super cool and people are using it. I'm surprised you brought up Christine, given that I think the word dashboard is is banned in your house or has been. It is. It is. I have to use other forms of communicating about that that item in our home. (laughs) I have such fond, fond feelings about it at times. (laughs) Yeah, but someone had to do it and it was you. (laughs) It happened. Uh, Let's go to Sean. Sean, what's your reflection? To celebrate the small victories, I think in this space, you have to do that because it can be frustrating to see the needle move in small directions. But so you got to celebrate the small victories. So do you have any small that, victories you're going to reflect on for the year? Personal? Um, 
not no, necessarily ones that other people will care about. I keep going back to I, I guess it's 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 the success of Fairlawn and and I love the story about how they were able to boost speeds. They have a great take rate. They were they're slashing prices, and I just love a story about fifty five dollar a month gig connections. Um, that sixty eight percent of the people in the town are taking service from that network. Remarkable, yeah. lovely story. Yeah, I love that story. Speaking of Ernie. Uh, Ms. Gautier. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I'll think back on the dashboard. I think it was a pretty cool thing to put out a big tool that I think we got a lot of feedback that people were using. I mean, I was just talking to folks from NDIA, specifically Abby last week, and she said, I use that all the time. We refer to people, we refer people to that dashboard all the time. That was really good to hear. I also feel like Putting out tools like that is a good beacon for feedback and communication with other orgs in terms of how we think about what we're advocating for, how we like just put together tools like that, how we like figure out what's useful to people. I think it's really helpful. to be All right. That's that's enough about the dashboard, Emma. You said that one of your best experiences with ILSR occurred last week. So how could that not be the highlight of your year? Well, <laughs> That was a huge personal highlight, but you said <laughs> make it relevant to other folks. <laughs> yeah, I attended my first Tribal Broadband Boot Camp last week, and it was the highlight of, yeah, probably my year and my time at ILSR. Really, really great to meet everyone there, participants and instructors. Get out and... from under Rye's thumb. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, Rye, that you couldn't make it. <laughs> but oh. yeah. I had a really excellent time. Yeah, last week was not the highlight of Rai's career. (laughs) And it looks like he still got a little bit. Rai just muted himself, still got a little hangover from it. What was was the highlight of the year for you? Or what's something you're reflecting on? So, Chris, I'm surprised you didn't mention that we did... 33 episodes of the connect this show last year uh or this this year i don't i I didn't know that that so we did more than half of the episodes we've done overall that's remarkable it's a little bit a little bit crazy um and a testament to the strange hold you have mostly on kim and doug and travis (laughs) uh such that they are willing to just hop on uh hop on a live show at uh with little notice and even little littler sense of what they're going to talk about yeah, uh, no. And I, I think, you know, definitely kudos back to Henry, who was uh, with us last year, who's uh, who's moved on to a, another opportunity, who set us up with that platform that makes it more fun and engaging and gives us the camera views that you run. So uh, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a it's been a wonderful year for Connect This. Yep, absolutely. And Deanne, Ms. Cuellar. Um, I am just reflecting the last couple of days on the amount of community organizing going on at every level of this work. Um, Just like if you, if you have an opportunity to join like the, not only the in-person convenings, which have been so inspirational to me too, um, as Emma, the the boot camps, um, that hands-on hearing and working with communities and leaders working on these problems, but just the massive amount of coordination that's going on in, in this sector it's it's really it's really interesting and it's growing and it's just really cool to see so many people involved with this issue and it doesn't even matter if you get on a call and there's eight people those eight people are getting stuff done and then you can jump on another one there's like 300 people um i think it's really neat how this is all building up to net inclusion while there's all this like kind of ugly stuff going on with twitter and media ownership and um it seems like we're all at the right in the right place at the right time yep yeah no i agree and I got to say, like, um, I had like 5,400 followers on Twitter. I mean, they're still there. Uh, I, I took a break this week um, after some of the um, obnoxious comments uh, from the now owner. And uh, last night, uh, as we're recording this, um, a bunch of journalists got banned and it sure looks bad. Uh, I've been having some fun conversations on Mastodon and um uh, I really hope Twitter doesn't crater and burn. There's a great community on there. There's great people that are doing really interesting work. I've had so many great conversations on there. Um, but right now I just need to take a break from it. So um, uh, I I spent the year complaining about the FCC, among other things. Um, and so I, I would celebrate that the FCC canceled the awards to LTD um, uh, and Starlink. I think that is 
it was a tremendous uh, step forward in this year for not wasting money on uh, on investments that I think would not have done well by the communities that were intended to be served by them. So I'm extremely happy about that. I did not see that coming. I don't think I predicted that. <laughs> I think if anything throughout the year, I was predicting the FCC would just punt on it and we'd all just watch it sitting there and nothing happening on it. So, um, so that's uh, tre- tremendous, but... Overall, I, I think my reflection is just there's so much money coming this way, um, and so much of it is going to the incumbents. And intellectually, I knew that was going to happen, but watching it happen still, it's a little bit hard. Um, seeing these companies that have served some communities so poorly and and are poised to just raise prices, and to see companies getting billions of taxpayer dollars while they're uh, buying shares back um, off Wall Street is gross and a total indictment of our political system. But um, at the same time, I think we are moving in a path of a lot more people having Internet access in rural areas. So that's good. Uh, a little bit of a uh, back and forth there. There's a couple of other hot topics that we'll talk about after we go through predictions, I think. But uh, we had a bunch of predictions and I'm just going to start going through these. And uh, I feel like. Uh, I'm going to start uh, from the top of the list that I sent out that I gathered from our, our show uh, a year ago. Uh, the most important predictions, I think, had to do with how many preemptions we thought might be rolled back, how many times we would see states that currently limit community networks getting rid of those restrictions. Uh, a lot of us were pretty bullish, thinking we would see more of them. Sean wins. Uh, Sean said one, and there were none. So... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> way to go, Sean! You Price won right. a terrible prize. <laughs> yeah, exactly. See what pessimism gets you. <laughs> um, but you were also right, and this is where this is where you totally get the credit. You said you didn't think it was going to come back in Ohio, and I feel like the great work that folks have done in Ohio, uh, Fairlawn's been involved with that, Medina County, uh, others uh, who have done a lot of work in Ohio to make sure that the big cable companies cannot step on them and uh, and and further restrict them. So Ohio will not be putting any of the federal dollars into community networks, it looks like, and that is annoying, dumb, counterproductive, and wasteful. Uh, but uh, at least we're not seeing any new restrictions in Ohio. So um, that's pretty good. Uh, any other reflections on the the preemptions? People feel like, I mean, I feel like it wasn't really much of an issue. The state legislatures were um, kind of creating broadband offices and things like that. There wasn't really a lot of policy that was done this year. Yeah, there was a little, there's a little movement in Pennsylvania to try to ease some of those restrictions, which, uh, you know, most close observers say just, you know, might actually make things a little bit messier and doesn't go far enough. But, um, you know, I think, you know, ultimately most folks, even in states that have state preemption laws, aren't aware that they even exist. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to rally folks around, you know, rolling that stuff back when they don't even know it's an albatross. Right. We also see that, you know, far Texas moved forward and is doing really great work despite having a significant preemption law. And so I think we're also seeing people finding ways of flowing around it in the noble tradition of the Internet of um, seeing censorship as danger or damage and uh, routing around it. So um, it's not it's not all bad out there. Uh, for new municipal networks, uh, we've certainly seen a number of them grow uh, behind the scenes, a little bit of uh, of a secret behind the scenes peek. We have been developing a new database internally to be able to track this stuff better. And we don't have a good count right now on how many new networks there have been. But I think next year at this time, uh, we will be better able to track these things. Uh, but we've done a lot of work creating a, a nuanced database that will allow us to uh, keep track of these as they develop and uh, and that sort of a thing. Uh, but I believe I said 20 to 50 new municipal networks, and I think that's in the range. Uh, certainly not all of them are online, but, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, FAR Texas. There's, there's so much happening in New England. I can't even count how many are in Maine. Vermont has gone so big in this direction. Uh, it's tremendous. Um, Tennessee picked up a few new that are uh, citywide efforts. Um, Duluth uh, is building an interesting network here in Minnesota. Superior is moving forward with it. New York State is doing a lot. Um, you know, there's there's just a lot of uh, things happening in a lot of places. There's other places that we're leaving out that um, a lot of good things are happening. So I don't know if anyone has any comments on on that issue, the the year in municipal networks. You mentioned Vermont a second ago, you know, 10 CUDs uh, at differing stages there in Vermont covering I think it, I think the CUDs now cover 95% of all the 
um, we'll cover all 95% of all the uh, underserved addresses there and something like 75% of the population total. So yeah, that's then those are the communications union districts. And um, and I presume that's pretty much everywhere outside of the Chittenden County where Burlington is. Um, yep. There's just and then several of them have broken ground. Uh, others are still getting underway. It's a very volunteer led effort. And I think it's gonna be fascinating to see how that develops with the state support that is being poured in by by the state of Vermont. Uh, Emma, you said the broadband label wasn't going to be enforced, and I don't know that we can rule on this yet. But I'm curious uh, what your reflections are on the the broadband labels. You've been you've been our specialist on that issue. A lot of enforcement and like whether the label is going to be well enforced and whether it's going to lead to good data about pricing and service is kind of yet to be seen. There was an order released in November, and it didn't have all the teeth, so to speak, we wanted it to have. There's a working group led by Josh Sager on this. And Was that free press now? Free press, yeah. And so a big thing that he was advocating, they were advocating for over there, um, is requiring that the label be displayed on monthly billing, which would be a great provider accountability mechanism. That was not included they're still working on that. It's not kind of the final order, um, but that was not included in the in the order released in November. I did go back to what I said last year, and I said that the label wouldn't be well enforced, but I said that the FCC would kind of roll over to industry pressure. And I actually don't think that's completely true, which is great. There were arguments that it would be too difficult for providers to make the label uh, machine readable and that's, the, that's hilarious <laughs> which is which is an absurd question right should the should the label be machine readable of course i'll do it just send me your information yeah. i'll do it i'm not that i'm not that worried about it <laughs> it's a huge data opportunity so why would we not require that make that requirement but that was part of it there was also a language accessibility part of it josh pointed out that there was extreme opposition to have the label in all the languages that a provider offered service in, which is kind of absurd also, but that was part of the order and requirements. And then finally, small ISPs are not exempt from disclosing information in the order. So I think that, you know, advocacy efforts were not in vain. They definitely helped. Um, There's some industry um, pressure, I think that obviously came into play, you know, with the deadlock in the FCC, that obviously played a big role probably in not getting the label on the monthly bill. Uh, That was probably a factor, but there were some good things that came out of that. There's also a lot to be seen on that. It's not. And that's that's what I wanted to sort of hit on is I feel like it's not bad considering it's a 2-2 FCC, um, but it is awful that we are halfway through President Biden's term and we have a 2-2 FCC. <laughs> it is ridiculous. We have um, Gigi Sohn waiting and hopefully will be confirmed um, before the end of the year. Um, if not, we'll hopefully be confirmed very quickly next year. Um, just a uh, very disappointing situation um, with uh, the Senate Democrats and the Biden administration. And frankly, also the FCC, like, uh, you know, we haven't seen Jessica Rosenworcel or Commissioner uh, Starks, uh, Chairwoman Rosenworcel or, Jeff, or, or Commissioner Starks coming out and saying, we need a full FCC, confirm Gigi. You know, they're I think that they're afraid she's going to outshine them. And I don't, I don't know. I shouldn't be trying to read minds, but like, it's just been kind of gross. Uh, and, uh, and you get a sense of how much politics in DC shape uh, how all this stuff works rather than uh, what the market needs uh, or, or anything along those lines. Um, so, I mean, I think the FCC's had a pretty poor year. I think we'll talk about that throughout, but did get a couple of key things, right? Um, so. Chris, uh, uh, you, you've been doing this, you know, a lot longer than even, you know, the, the longest tenured one of us here. Um, is this the longest period you've seen uh, this happen where there's a 2-2 FCC? Yeah. And I, you know, I didn't know a lot about uh, the commission prior to, I don't know, 2010, 2012. And I learned, and it took me a while to really get up to speed on norms, but I don't know the last time that I, the commission was down for this long. I mean, 
you know, generally a party controlled the Senate and did better. And there wasn't as um, as much polarization for voting for qualified people uh, in the Senate. Um, but everything's been weaponized since uh, around that time, since I started looking at it, really, um, you know, uh, Republicans really particularly led the way with weaponizing every vote in the Senate to try to drag things to a halt. Um, and then um uh, it's not that the Democrats didn't fight back or, or retaliate in different ways. Um, but, um, you know, if you look at Norm Ornstein and others who are kind of centrist who have tracked this, they would say that the Senate has been ground to a halt by a change in Republican strategies generally. And, and so we didn't see that before that so much. Uh, Sean and I thought a third of the states wouldn't be ready to apply for the money. Now, I'm curious how anyone reacts to that. Sean, you can go first. Wow, that was really optimistic because actually only 11 states have applied for the initial or who have been allocated initial planning funds, if folks recall or even don't know. So you get the initial planning funds first. And then after you get the initial planning funds, you have 270 days of getting those those funds to submit the five-year action plan. So there's only 11 states that have even done the first step in the process. Yeah. And so, maybe half of the states have the coronavirus capital projects fund money now, I think like that's been, yeah, I think it's like 25 ish. Yeah. About 25 states have got the CPF fund. So, so really only, you know, a handful of states are really ready to move forward and, and, and are on pace to get, I guess, bead funding in the, in the summer. And one of the one of the things that I think we've heard is and let's talk about state offices for a second. But I feel like one of the things that we've heard is that state offices are struggling to find people. Duh. Everyone knows that when they do find people uh, in a number of state offices, they're struggling to hold on to them because this is hard freaking work and it's complicated and they're being asked to do a lot. And frankly, I don't think their pay is commensurate with uh, what is being asked of them. So uh, I think we're seeing more transition, which I didn't anticipate fully. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the first six months of 2023. Uh, we'll get a sense of, you know, how many states were waiting for the new FCC maps to come out uh, and how many of the states that were waiting for those maps are going to quickly realize how useless they are. I'd be interested to hear from Christine on this, but, you know, I, I saw recently that uh, Alan Davidson over the head of the NTIA at the 40th Annual Institute on Telecommunications Policy and Regulation Conference said that, well, he called the new FCC maps a bit of technical wonder but then went on to express like some real concern about the short time frame to file challenges. So, you know, I guess he was trying to thread that needle, which let kind me, of, let me say, up- Sean, I'm wondering about them. So I guess technically he's correct. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I think more to the point though, uh, you know, d- d- despite his, you know, being amazed at the first draft of these maps, he is really concerned about filing challenges by such a short deadline. I mean, we're talking what 35, working days with three national holidays in between to file challenges and it, which kind of brings us to you know what Deanne was sharing with us the other day about the Texas Comptroller's letter basically asking the for the uh the filing challenge deadline to be extended. Right, but before we go to Deanne, Christine's going to jump in. Rewind a little bit to like the states, the number of states that are not prepared for bead funding and I'm just like looking at my the map of maps um, that I put out earlier this year and about nine so far are not sharing like public maps of broadband availability. It's not to say they don't have something going behind the scenes, but um, it's it's not made public yet. The 40 um, states then do have some kind of public map. They do, uh, but many of them are sharing just 477 data. So their their maps are not nearly detailed enough to be I think really useful for these bead applications. And Deanne, what are your thoughts on um, relating to all the bead and the state offices readiness and whatnot? Um, I feel like I, as someone who's been doing this work for a really long time, like you, and some am somewhat responsible for how uh, we are struggling to um, recruit and um, keep these folks who would like to work on this issue. I, I have been a person who has said, has been a naysayer, like, oh, they don't understand the technology. I don't know if they can do that role. And as someone who's been focusing on for the last year, trying to uh, do public awareness around this issue, I was wrong. That is not true. And we should not be disenfranchising um, digital inclusion advocates from nonprofit people to folks that want to work in broadband offices. This work, um, like all work, it, it just takes um, commitment to the the single issue and working a, 
cross-sectorally. And I, and that is something that can be acquired with dedication to a role. So I think we as digital inclusion advocates can contribute to um, recruiting people that don't have tech experience. I don't think tech experience is necessary. No, but I think uh, an enthusiasm to, to get that tech experience is necessary. Um, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I also want to say that I thought that you were saying there that you have uh, as much experience as I do, only you are somewhat responsible, which is also <laughs> true. <laughs> so, um, Christine, you had suggested, and I think Rye edged in on this one too, all good mapping will be at the state level. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I think you nailed it. Yeah, I think that's the way it's going to go. Um, and some states seem to be doing a really good job of, of bolstering their, their own maps and preparing for these beat applications and, and filing challenges against the FCC maps. So um, I think those states are going to come out ahead next year. Well, the FCC maps tell me that I can get a gigabit uh, fixed wireless at my house. I went to the website and it said I could pay hundreds of dollars a month for two or three megabits of wireless at my house and I could get a more customized quote. So I did start that process and I have not yet heard, uh, but I'm 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 curious um, and I'm curious how many cycles uh, we'll still see these false claims in these maps because the FCC refuses to penalize companies that engage in egregious mis uh, misidentification of where they can offer services. Rye, Chris, you don't think it's because all the trees you have around your house they just if you just clear clear them a little path then they could they could do that. Well, I, I do actually have some wonderful ash trees, which if anyone who knows St. Paul knows that that's actually um, a, a blessing and a curse with the ash borer uh, moving north so rapidly. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I, I have good relations with a neighbor and they have good line of sight. And uh, I think we could work something out with them if uh, if that was truly an issue. Uh, but I I don't think we're anywhere close to being able to provide. I mean, hell, if they could provide me a few hundred megabits of upload, I'd take it. You know, if they were like, no, we could do 200 megabits symmetrical. Boom, I'm there. Like, I'm already paying 100 bucks a month and getting, you know, Comcast data cap and like um, and having other issues uh, with my um, 40 megabits of upstream, which is the best I can do at this house currently. So, uh, you know, I don't need a gig wireless, but I'll take something. But, you know, three megabits isn't going to cut it <laughs> not for 185 dollars a month or something like that <laughs> come on yeah yep it yeah so i think all the good mapping is happening at the state level i i said that last year knowing that um i wouldn't have to do any of the heavy lifting because christine would be around to confirm or deny it for me so that's uh fits uh pretty well with how i like to operate uh just a plug for our united states of broadband map our map of maps that is continuously being updated by christine uh, it gives you a sense of um, which states are further ahead and what they're doing and what their maps uh, currently look like. And we are in the process of adding a new layer, uh, a new row to those maps, which shows which states uh, have filed bulk challenges already. So that should be coming down the pipeline pretty soon. The more that I think about it, and we and probably for different reasons, but I actually think I agree with the Texas controller that there should be an extension oh, yeah. of that. Like we can walk and chew gum at the same time. It's like every state's going to get a hundred million, like roll that money out ASAP and then get the maps good. And then the rest of the money you can kind of figure out later or, or, or allocate it on a rolling basis like they're doing with the CPF funds. Yeah, but you understand why folks are would challenge extensions, right? This just because because NTIA is screwing it up. I'm wondering why NTIA can't get its act together and figure out that they could get some money out before they use the final determinations. So, um, so Dan, I agree with you. Like, I mean, I think we don't want the the incumbents want to slow roll this, and we don't want to slow roll the money to the states, but I don't want to rush through a failed process. So um, I wasn't even thinking about it like that. I, I think that that's another good point. I, as someone who's always trying to like get people to like do things together, you know, setting, setting timelines is, is part of that agreement as a collective. And so we are one country, we're not 50 countries, you know, we're, we're a single country. And so as a, as a collective, as a country, we're trying to get on the road to recovery and this is a recovery effort. And so I understand the nobility behind the extension because it's one way of saying like, we're doing it, we're trying to do it. We're a big state, all the reasons, but you have to understand for like the rest of the country, it's like there are states that are ready to go or then there, that means those communities are ready to go. They're ready to get on the road to recovery. So I, I think that like, I'm not going to like uh, dig anything on my state because I, I live here, but I just think like this is where this is where we could do better um, in in coordinated efforts. I might have ranted once or 
potentially two times about how the FCC's had more than a decade knowing that we were going to get to this moment and refuse to be ready for it. They've totally failed. NTIA does not have to have perfect maps before they start rolling out money. They they can they know that they know roughly where the money's going to go. They don't know the final amounts and they can start rolling it out. It is their political decision to slow roll this and then to make the final de- decision uh, without having very accurate data. And I just think this is very bad politics. It's very bad for the, the states. It's bad for people who need internet access. There's nothing you can really say that like that's positive in terms of these decisions, except that they're sort of like, we made a decision, we're sticking by it, and sort of stuff. I've heard from folks that have had early looks at the the newest data and like a comparison of that to the old data set, the number of unserved is in some cases double than what it was in the previous data set. So there's, like you're saying, there's no reason for them to like wait to like have perfect maps because we know the numbers, like we know roughly what the numbers should be or are. And there's, there's no reason to like not roll out some money already, especially to this, like, like Deanna's saying, it's unfair to make the states that are prepared wait. Some states have been paying attention and are ready to go. Yeah, NTIA is making this blunder over and over again, right? I mean, we talked about this with regard to tribes where um, the Hoopa Valley folks are doing three different projects. One involves a tower, one involves a data center, one involves building a fiber network throughout their territory. They can't do a, spend a dime moving forward with those projects until they finish the permitting for all of them. And that's dumb. And that will make it harder for them to engage in the workforce development that we want them to do. It's counterproductive on every single goal that NTIA has. And it's just yet another rule that doesn't make sense, except that NTIA is deathly afraid of the whole, the problem with uh, Solyndra, right? Which is that they just don't want to have um, a problem where, and this probably won't happen in Hoopa Valley, but it will happen somewhere where someone starts building a project and then they hit a permitting issue that they cannot resolve. And then some of that money might be wasted or might be used inefficiently. But you know what? That's part of the deal. Like none of this stuff is perfect. If it was perfect, we wouldn't need government to step in and sort it out. So like, I just, I'm tired of these uh, people who are acting on uh, the public interest who refuse to make these hard decisions and then say, you know what, we're not going to get them all right, but it's more important that we move forward and we allow these projects to create all these other benefits than that we try to resolve every potential problem that could resolve before we move forward. Emma? Yeah, just really quick. I think like momentum is very key and getting money flowing is really important to that. I mean, I was just talking to someone at the boot camps last week, like in terms of tribal projects, like people are working really hard in their communities to be like champions and advocates for these projects and get people excited and keep people excited about them. And when there's so many delays, it's really hard. It's a lot of work for maybe even like one champion in the community who's like really trying to maintain momentum and energy around this. Yeah, there was money that where every tribe is supposed to get a certain amount. And even that money hasn't been distributed. We're past the statutory deadlines. And so NTIA is basically like, well, we got to be really careful. It's like, well, you're ignoring the other part of the law that said you had to get the money out there. What you know, this is your decision, NTIA. And and you're harming people in um, on reservations who need this and need to get going. Um, they need to get it active. And not only that, I mean, it ends up costing more money then um, because they have to figure out how to pay the salaries of people who are doing this work while they're waiting for the money that is supposed to be paying those salaries. It's a mess. And and it's a self-inflicted mess, which is frustrating. Moving on to uh, supply chain, I thought we would be mostly resolving supply chain stuff. And Sean said the fiber order backlogs will skyrocket. I think we're kind of in between there. I feel like it's not as bad as it had been. I don't think I've seen evidence of skyrocketing. Although if you're a really small company trying to, if you're a wisp trying to get, you know, like 15, 20 miles of fiber, good luck to you, I suppose. I think that's probably is happening. I did see a report from, uh, that Sienna has a $4 billion order backlog as of s- September, 2022. Um, so, yeah. And I think for people who want to talk more about this, we talked about it on the episode of connect this that uh, came out episode 60 on December 15th. Uh, Rye, you talked about chip shortages and thought that would mostly be resolving. Uh, my read is that that's more or less correct. It's not perfect, but things are headed in the right direction. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think people figured it out. They whether they took you know lower bin chips or uh, figured it out some other way. Um, 
I don't think the chip shortage is is really a thing anymore. Unless you're trying to buy a a, a video card, you can't get a 4080 for for anything these days, even though they're going for 1600 bucks. So uh, if you're building a, a new computer, it's a it's a tough time. Uh, Sean said that Starlink will be underwhelming, and I feel like Sean is correct, but I will put in my normal proviso, which is Starlink is still amazing compared to the alternatives in many of these areas. Good point. I'll just mention that I, I, I've learned that um, Starlink is losing something like on the order of 20 million bucks a month. In 2020, when they rolled out the beta, remember they were talking about this when they had like 800 orb, uh, satellites in orbit. They were You could get as much as like 50 megabits per second up to 150 megabits per second download. Uh, there's four times as many satellites out there now, and the average, according to speed test data, most users are lucky to get 50 megabits download, and the and and that's dropping. It's 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 dropped 17% in the United States and 14% in Canada. So you're right. It's 50 megabits is better than what folks in remote locations were were getting before Starlink, but yeah. Yeah, no, and they've instituted uh, the the bandwidth limits, although it is a very good bandwidth limit in that it is focused on peak time bandwidth, which is the only economically sound way, if you're going to be fair, to do it. Um, you know, I have a Comcast data limit because I don't have much competition in this area. And it's ridiculous because if I upload a terabyte of information between 3 and 5 a.m. over the course of two weeks, uh, I am not costing Comcast a penny. It's, there's no issue there. And the idea that that counts against my limit is is dumb and um, and just a, a straight up cash grab. Go ahead, Ryan. It's absolutely ridiculous. It uh, burns me up so bad, uh, particularly because I know that the charter uh, bandwidth caps are coming here. It's 2024, right? So uh, it's a dark future ahead for my household, too. Right. Charter does not have bandwidth caps due to a merger agreement that they had signed previously. Um, I had made a prediction that three big cities would be doing modest projects. That would be really cool. And uh, I'm uh, that's not counting New York City or Baltimore. Uh, you know, Detroit's doing some cool stuff. Uh, Los Angeles uh, has multiple cities doing some cool stuff. Los Angeles County itself is doing cool stuff. I feel like I'm in the the gray area there, but it's pretty close. Um, I was hoping there would be more. Um, still hoping that there will be more. Uh, I said there would be a full-on anti-municipal broadband blitz in 2022. Eh. I mean, I would say that this charter-funded campaign, the um, ABQ, um, Alliance for Quality Broadband, or AQB, is uh, it's all right. I mean, in terms of like, it's not a blitz. It's it's a little bit it's a little bit unimpressive, but it is uh, a hassle and fooling people around the country. So, um, I think we're going to still see that amped up in the future. But I don't know that I can take that as a win, Sean. Yeah, although it it likely probably influenced uh, a few uh, proposals in Maine. Yeah, it definitely did. I'm sure like there's there's multiple places where it's had an inf- had an effect. Um, but I thought there'd be, you know, more of a coordinated effort uh, by the the big companies. I think they're still watching and trying to figure out when to pull out the big guns. Deanne said there'd be so much more high profile media attention on this stuff in 2022. How, how do you rate that? I, I don't know. Um, there were some really good articles. We could do a search, but I, 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 I think there has been uh, quite a bit of a high profile when I say high profile, I mean that like outside of like those of us who like purposely look to read these stories, um, I, I think there was a lot of good attention and earned media on price, you know, the the prices that communities are paying. Um, the markup, most notably. Yeah, the markup and, and there's LA a lot. Yeah, and a larger conversation about consumer protections um, and I think that there was better visibility on how being poor is expensive. That phrase that I keep re- repeating, you know, it's just like, that's, that's something that is easy to understand easy as you can. Right. I shouldn't say anything is easy, but the truth is, is like, it is very expensive to be low income or poor in the United States. And, um, and this problem with the internet is, is contributing to it at the same time, while we as advocates are saying it is the solution for so many ails in our community. We're saying, here's a solution, workforce development, telemedicine, work from home. We're saying this, the utility has all these solutions and then we're making it very expensive and very difficult for communities to have it. And that's a difficult thing to watch as an advocate. Yes. And I'll just say, I feel like we've seen some national media from um, the newspapers and things like that done a decent job. Television media is atrocious and radio has not been nearly as good as it should be for something that everyone thinks is the most important thing uh, in terms of uh, you know Internet access being so important. 
everybody's doing ACP enrollment right now. And now we're going to gear up and we're going to do like one more big Herculean push for it. And what the thing is interesting for me is that like we haven't come that far from over 10 years ago about how to reach people. And so I'm on these calls. Well, I mean, meetings trying to explain to people like that we'll be using radio and we'll be using over the air broadcast and like basically old school community organizing to reach people. And they're, they're just like, are you sure? And I'm like, yes, because those are the people that are still not connected. And that is their, that is how they are receiving information, not just in urban communities, but also rural communities. And and let's not forget to further buttress Deanne being in the, in, in the, in the wind column on this prediction, the Washington post did publish a gigantic story that Tony Rom wrote about ACP, um, which got a lot of attention. And then we always have to, we, we, we got to shout out Nate Benson. Um, he's not a national television reporter, but he's probably the only television reporter that, that understands the stuff and covers it well up in the, the Buffalo area of New York. Yeah. If we had 10 Nate Bensons, I'd stop ragging on uh, TV news so much. The local TV news, the national TV news. I'm um, constantly talking about how it's atrocious. And then he, he'll get up in my face to be like, Hey man, it hurt my feelings. And uh, uh, he does great work. I wish we had more of it, more like him. Uh, we have uh, Rye said uh, lots more at the Washington Public Utility Districts. I don't know how to evaluate that. I, I think there's stuff going on, but I it hasn't popped up on my radar as much and hadn't had a chance to look into it yet to get a sense of where that ended up this year. Yeah, it was a, a little bit of a strange year in that we were kind of uh, some lots of us were working on kind of long term projects that uh, are nearing completion. So we can kind of return to this uh, boots on the ground stuff, which will be a, uh, an exciting uh thing for 2023 but uh i think we saw uh even without knowing the full picture a lot of good stuff happening at the ports and puds in washington in washington state uh jefferson county pud uh is taking 20 million in grant money to do a bunch of work uh 14 counties got 145 million from the state uh to do projects lots of those were partnerships but lots of it will also be um, publicly owned infrastructure as well and so um i think i think they continue to be the kind of under the radar burn over there. And let's not forget, actually, Chris, you 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 um flagged flagged me on this the other day. Um, because of the PUDs and the infrastructure that they've built, Zipply was able to acquire um, what is it, iFiber? Yep. And and expand the footprint, so more folks are going to have access to to broadband because of the infrastructure that the PUDs have. Uh, well, no, I think, I mean, to be clear, so this this company, Zipply, which is a, a big company that's made up of mostly of Frontier's former assets out there, uh, you know, they bought uh, a company that operates on a bunch of those public utility districts and was one of the uh, a more popular one. Um, I don't know that that immediately results in anyone having more access, um, but it will. Well, according to their press releases, it does. It's like going to be able to like extend the reach of, I, you know, iFiber and help them build out to more folks. Yeah, I mean, I I'm not really sure what the plan is with iFiber because iFiber wasn't an infrastructure company. Uh, iFiber pretty much operated on infrastructure of the public utility districts, and maybe they have a, a new plan now. Uh, I'm I'm not sure, um, but I think fiber to the first place. <laughs> it could be. I mean, Zipply, I think they're they're building real infrastructure. I still I never really understood their model of why they think, um, you know, in terms of big privately owned um, uh, private entity companies. Uh, why they're doing what they are. Like, I don't really understand what their model is. But, um, you know, Sparklight, which is a truly horrendous cable company, uh, I think took a significant, made an investment in Zipply. Is that right, Rye, I think? Um, and it, it kind of, it was interesting to me that when you have a cable company that can barely, <laughs> you know, keep its network operating, when it's taking its own <laughs> capital and putting that into another company in another part of the country, that's a, that's a remarkable statement there of like where you think you can make more money. <laughs> $50 million, not a drop in the bucket either. It's a strange uh, you know, maybe it's tied up with all the private equity moves that we've been seeing. You'd think that money would be uh, better served keeping the lights on uh, for for their, their subscribers. Yeah, I'm no Wall Street analyst, but I got to feel like that. To me, that looks like, boy, our management sucks. We're just going to invest in this other company that knows how to manage a little bit better. <laughs> maybe one that knows how to send an email to the people it's intended to rather than to uh, people who are uh, opposing you when you're going to candidly say that uh, we need to stop municipal uh, broadband networks because it's the greatest threat that our company faces. <laughs> uh, Ars Technica story, wonderful job after uh, an email got uh, leaked to us. Uh, Sean, you said there's going to be more of an effort to cut the ACP and a return of the net neutrality fight. And, uh, and I think I was wrong. 
I think, yeah, I think you got a little bit screwed there by uh, Gigi Sohn not being confirmed. So then the FCC hasn't done anything on net neutrality. And frankly, we're the only ones really thinking about when the ACP will run out of money. A National Digital Inclusion Alliance, uh, Angela Seifert, just testified in that Senate committee, sure. and she made a strong point that they need to fill that back up. So, sure. yeah, I mean, there's definitely uh, a few others, but, uh, you know, Comcast and AT&T will be on our side for that one and pushing for more money to, uh, um, you know, to just make sure that 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 uh, that waterfall of, of taxpayer dollars continues into uh, their shareholders hands. So, uh, Sean, you also had my favorite prediction, which is the last one we have here. 5G still won't be a thing in 2022, and 5G still is not a thing. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'll qu- I'm going to quote Doug Dawson. He said, the marketers have convinced everybody that the new bands of spectrum being used for 4G are actually 5G, and it's a pretty slick uh, marketing trick to, to so that the cellular carriers don't have to explain why 5G isn't really here yet. Yeah. I think, yeah. We, just, well, I th- I think we should just call it Sean G, and, let, and we'll be done with it. <laughs> So let's wrap up with uh, any any last comments as we reflect on the year. Um, any topics we want to we want to revisit? I'll bring up one, which is uh, RDOF, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. I think uh, it's something that's kind of flown under the radar this year. Um, we're still doing some final tallying, but with the kind of high profile involuntary defaults by uh, Starlink and LTD, and the voluntary default of Starry, um, and Christine can jump in here and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're almost ninety percent of those round one funds being having been dispersed at this point. And so, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that money went to the the big monopoly providers, but uh, de- more than a billion dollars went to cooperatives and cooperative consortia around the country. So um, I expect to see, you know, in, in 2023, some uh, real progress being made there. I think that's a, a success story that needs to be told for 2020. Yeah, they are, they are building. And even charters building in some cases, uh, windstream, uh, I think, you know, so um, I'm worried that that they won't be building as fast as we'd like to in other areas. They have a long time before they have to spend those funds. But um, the, the Starry's default is fascinating. I, I don't think a lot of people saw Starry crashing and burning the way it did. Uh, Starry was um, the crown jewel of, of many in the in the WISP movement, I feel like. Um uh, which is uh, a complicated thing to say because a lot of WISPs are small local companies and Starry was a giant company that was moving big and trying to, you know, but but it crashed and burned. And uh, and I'm frankly glad that we see less money going to so-called gigabit wireless, which has not yet been demonstrated anywhere except for like on uh, custom-made boards that aren't publicly available. Um, you know, it certainly uh, is not going to work in terms of most of the terrain of these rural areas. So, um you know, I'm I'm sorry to see Starry going, but uh, I feel like that was a major story of this year. And uh, between that and the the 5G millimeter waves stuff, like I feel like there's still a lot of people who keep talking about how like super fast wireless is coming, and and certainly there's areas where it pops up, but there's a heck of a lot of people who aren't experiencing that. They, you know, they're uh, they don't have the right line of sight. The right spectrum isn't available or whatever. And so, uh, you know, I continue to think that uh, it would be foolish not to spend most of these broadband uh, monies that are available on fiber. Uh, I think we got to spend it on something that's going to be around for a long, long time and has a more secure business model. Something I shared with all of you and just kind of timely with the end of the year, the FCC has announced the sunsetting of the 477 data set. So the dawn of a new data set. Right, and not we'll but not all of 477. Year. Right. ISPs will still be submitting um, subscriber data that they previously did with the 477 form, um, but the availability data set, uh, they will not be submitting anymore. So that'll just be through the broadband data collection now. Just reflecting on all the workflow I spent this year learning <laughs> how to use, and now I get to do it all again. Looking forward to it. Christine, I have to say that if a year ago you told me that I would be more pessimistic about the FCC and the and the broadband data, I would be really wondering how that was possible. But uh, the FCC uh, is just such a mess on this. I mean, we're still talking about uh, we're still talking about advertised data where where there's no actual sense of what, that reality matters. There's no pricing data. Uh, I, I don't. It's not serious. The FCC is not serious about solving broadband problems or collecting real data. Yeah, there's a lot of questions still to that remain unanswered about this data set, and um, 
Yeah, people are really frustrated, even more think, so than with the last one, I think. I mean, I'll say, I'll say, Chris, I feel more optimistic this year. I think uh, one of the silver linings to the disaster of the maps is we have people, now we've got people like Christine, we've got uh, the National Broadband Mapping Coalition, we've got Dustin, we've got folks uh, at universities all around the country who have stepped up. And I think uh, a lot of people sure. don't know the kind of Herculean efforts and the uh, the frankly impressive work that they've done to work around some of the data set size problems and other things. Um, I think even in dark times like this, uh, it's helpful to note the people that, that it forces people to step up and develop new expertise and step into the light a little bit. And I think we're, we're uh, developing um, skill sets and, and technical expertise that we didn't have a year ago. Yes. I, and that's a, it's a very good note to, to, I think, end on. I do believe that I, I still hope the FCC will be shamed into getting it right some year because I go back to like the National Weather Service, uh, NOAA, these things, these government agencies that are so important to make sure that we have accurate information about weather systems and other things because so many other businesses depend on them. And the idea that uh, if you're going to move into a new area or you're going to be putting a business into an area, not having certainty about what kind of internet access is there in the year 2023, and you're going to rely on a hodgepodge of, of academics and nonprofit people that are doing the right thing for their own reasons to try to like figure out that it's, it's a little bit not serious to, I mean, I, I keep saying that, you know, like they're just, the FCC is not serious and we should have a serious regulator. So uh, with that, it has been a heck of a year. I'm, I feel so privileged to have spent it with y'all. Uh, I'm so happy for uh, the people that continue to find our analysis useful and, and help us with it and inspire us with the work that they're doing locally. And I uh, hope that everyone has a, a great end of the year. Uh, I hope that uh, we'll have some really terrific, optimistic predictions for next year uh, as we go in. Um, and it's been a heck of a year. So thank you, everyone. Cheers. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle's at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.